This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Young Turks, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, and Democracy Now! CNN has announced the formation of a new unit that will not report the news. Instead, it will take money from corporations to produce content that resembles news, but is actually PR designed to burnish its clients' images. What's the name CNN gives to this mercenary enterprise? Courageous. Well, before you consult a dictionary, CNN is leaping out in front of potential criticism. This isn't about confusing editorial with advertising. An executive from parent company Turner told the Wall Street Journal about what that paper described as news-like content on behalf of advertisers. This is about telling advertisers stories, telling similar stories, but clearly labeling that and differentiating that, explained Dan Rice. Trustworthiness is the point, Rice said. His job title is Executive Vice President of Integrated Marketing and Branded Content. But he tells us, quote, we're not here to blur the lines, close quote. I guess what kind of interview we have for you today. Oh, my God, how did you know? That's right, another fantastic interview. Today is with Michael Isikoff. Uh, he's an award-winning journalist, uh, only worked the Washington Post, Newsweek, NBC News, was a chief investigative correspondent, and is the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News right now. Too much of TV, as you know, is mm-hmm. about ratings and numbers, and if a story doesn't seem like it's going to get good numbers or, you know, uh, there isn't going to be interest. It is a commercial business. So you think that that's a large part of it. I mean, so they think if I interview President Obama, I'm going to get big ratings for that because he's right. a big star, right? So if right. you break your annoying story about how he's executing U.S. citizens without due process, I'm less likely to get the president. Not that many people are going to watch that story. It's a it's a bummer, right? And so, yeah. and then you'll cost me my ratings when uh, when I could get the president on later. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you're putting it in a way that's probably you know a little starker than it actually <laughs> is. These it, you know these things are often more subtle. You know? <laughs> no, no, they're much more subtle. Of, but actually, I'm being yeah. uh, uh, kind to them because right. I actually think that's some part of the equation, but certainly not the whole equation. I also think the fact that if things filter down, so if Comcast needs mergers approved, okay, sure. they don't want to piss off the government. There's billions of dollars at stake there. Right. So guy at Comcast isn't going to pull Brian Williams aside and say, hey, Brian, don't do the story against the Obama administration. It's going to be super subtle. Right. Right. He's going to talk to the guy who's head of NBC 
news, who's going to talk to the guy who's the head of the news, yeah. uh, nightly news, who, right. who, who are all going to have subtle conversations, right? Yeah. And I've been there, and I've had those subtle conversations, but at the end of the day, all of a sudden you have a neutered press, especially on TV, yeah. right, that doesn't right. really have an interest. Am I right in, in, in saying that TV is worse than print journalism and yeah. other parts of the media? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, look, there is still excellent journalism in, um, in Washington. I, you know, the New York Times uh, it, you know, makes its share of mistakes, but it also does a pretty serious job of, of, of holding um, uh, the president and co- members of Congress and you know, the administration accountable on a lot of issues. I'm, I'm regularly impressed with what um, some of my uh, you know, p- colleagues who I've known for years have uh, you know, do in this area, and the Washington Post has done. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of good journalism out there. Um, you know, uh, the media has become so fractured these days that um, if it doesn't, you know, we all tend to consume the media that can, f- that can, that makes us f- feel better about our prejudices, right, <laughs> and conforms our prejudices. So if there's a story out there that conflicts with your prejudices, you may not even see it, or you'll yeah. see a very skewed version of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I so, mean that's that's the more serious issue today is mm-hmm. how the fragmentation of the media has made it hard for people to get a handle on you know well on that I I agree, I agree and disagree a little bit so so the part I agree with that is I, I hear you you know it's so we know that if you like certain things on Facebook Facebook is going to serve that to you if you right. are a conservative you watch Fox News right. they're going to reinforce that. Now, I like to think we don't do that, and I have good evidence to that effect, because when I started speaking out against the Obama administration and the abuses, including uh, the, the extrajudicial killings and the drone strikes, we lost a lot of uh, members. A lot of people who subscribe to our show right. said, how dare you, what are you doing, and stuff. Right. So that does normally happen. There are some of us who don't do that and who try our best to be fair and honest with our with our coverage, you know, I've always said I'm a progressive, but mm-hmm. but I don't care about the Democratic Party at all. And if they're not right. progressive, I have no interest in them, right? And so, yeah, that's an issue. But the part that I uh, I think is a bigger problem, and hence I guess my disagreement a little bit with you is that on that is that look, I, I think it's an overall trend in the media uh, that is not just about your Facebook likes, and that uh, that right now uh, we minimize things that would have been giant scandals in the past. We maximize things that are nonsense, made up, uh, fake scandals, right? Uh, and the media gets led around by the nose by certain agendas. So, I mean, to the story you uncovered in that in one of the memos, Eric Holder writes, "Due process is not necessarily a judicial process." That's outrageous. That's Nixonian. Mm-hmm. That's the when the president does it, it right. it's by look, definition look, legal. Can I, if I get just. Um it's the political culture. What gives a story legs? What is when there's an adversarial party on the other end? We're going to pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Right? During Watergate, you had a Democratic Congress that was, and you know, in addition to a judicial system, that was going to hold hearings and get to the bottom of what was a real scandal in the government. Um, uh, we had that during Iran-Contra. Um, uh, we had 
we had it to, to a degree that makes some people, you know, a lot of people thought was excessive, but we certainly had it during the Clinton administration and the investigations in the Clinton administration, some of which, by the way, such as the campaign finance abuses, I thought were real and serious uh, mm -hmm. and needed to be investigated. Um, we don't have that today. You know, you, on the issues that you're talking about, the Republican Congress isn't interested in investigating Obama for extrajudicial killings of suspected terrorists. Um, they're not, you know, uh, demanding uh, more tr the, 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 to see, for the transparency that he promised in the drone program. Um, you know, these are so not issues that, you know, cause a political reaction in Washington, and that's what drives stories. That's what gives them momentum. So that's a, that's a great and interesting point. So let's flesh that out a little bit. So whenever uh, Democrats agree with Republicans, which happens actually a lot, people don't talk about it, but yeah. the extrajudicial killings, the tax cuts, uh, you know, people don't talk about it. Obama made Bush's tax cuts permanent for 94% of the revenue affected, right? right. So that's an in, that Bush couldn't do that, right. right? That people give him credit for taking away six percent, yeah. right? But no, he made ninety-four percent permanent. So, but you're never going to have a controversy about that right. because the Republicans are going to go, okay, oh yeah, yeah, yeah you raise taxes, right. but I'm going to let it go, right? Yeah. So whenever we have a conservative position, uh, Obama pushes it, Republicans push it. There's no controversy. Everybody just keeps right. on going along. If uh, if there's anything that is either a progressive position or just scandals that are made up, so let's use the IRS scandal. Yeah. Okay, so the IRS it turns out investigated uh, liberal groups as much as they investigated conservative groups. Right. It turns out actually they did one took one actual action against a liberal group, none against conservatives, and you find out it's nothing. It's made out of thin air. Okay, and there's an agenda behind that. The Republicans want to make sure that their donors are allowed to cheat on their taxes as much as possible. So they want to rob the IRS of, of its resources and they want to say and they want to be able to have those donors give into their campaigns and not have the IRS look into it. So they want to say IRS scandal, 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 IRS. Uh, well the other guys, Obama in this case, opposes them and says, No, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's just not true, right? Yeah. Okay, we have controversy. Right. So now that sucks up all the oxygen in the room for how many yeah. months? Yeah. You know, how many years? Right. So how do you deal with this uneven playing field where the truth gets buried by its nature and the nonsense gets promoted by its nature? Well, <laughs> I mean, look, I think that you look at each one of these things and, the, you know, the, Examine the facts, and I think ultimately um, the uh, the degree to which some of these things have been overblown uh, becomes clear. And I don't hear many people talking about the IRS thing right they now. They did their damage. They yeah. got their advertising, well, and, and, and also, but look, I mean, and by the way, the IRS. Officially said, we're not investigating anybody that's giving political uh, campaign money now. It's an unbelievable well, unilateral see, yeah, to, surrender. To, to a degree, that to me is the real scandal. I thought that that the 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 abuse of five hundred one c fours 
um, supposedly uh, social welfare organizations, and that's why you get the tax so exemption, nice and then being abused, you know, for purely political purposes, um, you know, I always thought was the real scandal here. And by the way, it happens on both sides. And you yeah, know, absolutely. Obama, after criticizing this, had his own organizing for action, which was a 501c4. Obama's uh, you know, set up at, uh, uh, as a, a, a social welfare organization that was essentially just promoting his political agenda. That's what it was created for. It was his, it was the remnants of his campaign. Um, that was being used uh, for political purposes and as a run-up to the uh, uh, 2014 elections. Um, you know, the fact that the IRS has not been more aggressive monitoring these groups on both sides is what I thought is, as I said, the, was the real scandal, and, and there should be. And, and yeah, they, but, but Lois Lerner and those people were clumsy about the way they did it, asking for word searches of Tea Party as a, as a, as a grounds for which who you were going to target. That was wrong. They shouldn't have done it. Um, you know, uh, so there, there a, was something a, that led to it. The whole right? point of the fake scandal was to cover up the real scandal. Okay, well, and it worked, and it worked yeah. because of the exactly okay. what you outlined, which is right. if you have a controversy, it's going to suck up all the oxygen in the room, right? Right. right. And so all you have to do, right or wrong, is create a controversy. News anchors, news actors, plastic journalists, none of us, none of us trust you or your written scripts. in reporting recently showed that the big three news networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, give more media coverage to billionaires in the U.S. than to people in poverty. Maybe that wouldn't be such a big deal, except that there are 482 billionaires in the U.S. and roughly 50 million poor people. Yet our media acts like reporting on welfare and struggling citizens is equivalent to burping up something bad. Afterwards, the reporters make an ugly face and then hope no one mentions it again. Yeah? <laughs> oh. Medicaid. Oh. <laughs> the big three networks aired almost four times as many stories that included the term billionaire as stories including terms such as homeless or welfare. And that coverage of the filthy rich generally spoke about them in a favorable light. Look, corporate media reporters, uh, uh, can, can we talk for a minute? Just, just you and me. I get it. I get it. It's more fun to talk about billionaires and maybe even get to interview Warren Buffett or, or that guy who created Candy Crush. He's, he's a billionaire, right? And, and even if you don't get to meet him, you get to think about what it's like to own a bidet 
that knows your name. <laughs> I know. I know it's more fun. But while you're doing that, 99.99% of the population is sitting here with our thumbs up our butts, waiting for some real news that has anything to do with our lives. Over 50 million people are struggling. And to rub it in, you have to tell them how Jeff Bezos feels great about buying the Washington Post. Not buying a Washington Post. Buying the Washington Post. <laughs> Just imagine if there were regular investigative reports on how to deal with predatory payday loans or, or a bank trying to illegally foreclose on you. Every week, segments on where best to get food or health care if you need it. If you're a single parent working at McDonald's, imagine how appreciative you would be to see a report on how to save on child care by hiding your toddler in the Playland ball pit for the day. Right? <laughs> or perhaps how to feed a baby with a man's nipple. You know, or, or, or how to convince John McCain you're his gardener, thereby getting to live rent-free in the pool house of one of his dozen homes. That actually, that, that, that one actually might work, because if you'll recall, McCain doesn't even know how many houses he owns. You get the point. Our media ignores the poor while building up the sociopaths at the top. Don't you dare speak of the commonwealth To become every man for himself Rich and poor, void in between Raise a wire, gay communities The wealthiest anomalies With their own privatized police While the silent majority States for the press, obey the corporate American dream. Finally, Americans are divided in many ways, but there are some points of convergence, one of which seems to be hatred of the cable company Comcast. Notoriously terrible customer service, a pricing system described as absurd, a stranglehold on Internet speeds, all of that garners the cable company a remarkable amount of dislike and distrust. And that played a role in quashing its effort last year to merge with perennial runner-up for worst company in America, Time Warner Cable. You would think, therefore, that it would be bigger news that Americans who hate Comcast, largely for reasons related to its bigness, are now facing the possibility of essentially another Comcast. The harms from a possible merger between Charter Communications, Time Warner, and Bright House Networks were detailed in a piece for BillMoyers.com by Michael Copps. He's not a stranger to the issue, but the former chair of the FCC. And Copps says that this new mega company would control about a third of the nation's cable and cable broadband markets, would also own programming, including regional sports networks, and would dominate some of the biggest media markets like New York and Los Angeles. Worse, since the new company wouldn't compete in any markets with Comcast, they'd have no incentive to compete, but every incentive to coordinate against shared competitors, including those offering independent and diverse voices. Least surprising, the deal would start the new company off with some $27 billion in debt, a time-honored incentive to raise prices and cut services. And why not? Because where else will people go? 
where there's still time to speak out against this charter merger. One place you can file comments with the FCC is nomoremergers.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Newsy, where they put together two-minute explainer videos to give you a well-rounded understanding of the stories that are making headlines. For instance, I just watched Pope Francis reiterate his call to world leaders to abolish the death penalty, learned that European cities rank highest in quality of life and personal safety, and also heard that Edward Snowden has said recently that he would actually return to the U.S. if he were promised a fair trial, Uh, and he says that so far the U.S. has only promised to not torture him which is a start. For these stories and more, including a bunch of other topics such as tech, entertainment, and health, check out newsy.com slash easy. That's N-E-W-S-Y dot com slash easy. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that China is trying to rewrite the rules, not just of the Internet in China, but all over the world. Now, we know that the, the Republican Party is largely in bed with, uh, with the whole China business thing. Right? Uh, Republicans have championed legislation. Virtually all of the trade, free, so-called free trade agreements have been pushed overwhelmingly by Republicans and only marginally supported by Democrats, even though you know, some of the largest ones were signed by a Democratic president. It was over the opposition of his own party. That was you know, Bill Clinton. And, and I would predict the same would happen with Barack Obama. Is, you know, the Democratic Party as a whole is saying no to this stuff. So the Republicans are all in with China being the factory floor of America and Americans no longer having good paying manufacturing jobs. Are the Republicans also all in with China rewriting the rules of the Internet so that big corporations or big governments, in the case of China, actually the two are interchangeable. Many of the very, very large corporations in China are state-owned or partially state-owned industries, and all of them exist with the sanction of the state. Now, American corporations exist with the sanction of the state as well. You have to file corporation papers, incorporation papers, with the Secretary of State and the state in which you're incorporating. But that has... Uh, oh, that's interesting. Just got bump, bumped out of the chat room. Hope our Internet's still working. Ah, I'm back in. Okay. Um, that has... Uh, some, you know, significant consequences. And so, you know, it's it's really sort of a rhetorical question because if you look at the Republican, right now, various Republican or Republican-aligned groups have filed at least 10 lawsuits to overturn net neutrality here in the United States. Now, net neutrality basically means that the government has no control over the Internet other than to say that individual Internet service providers can't get between you and the website that you want to look at. That's it. I mean, there's an exception, I, I believe, for child porn, and there may be an exception for national security, but I don't, I, frankly, I don't think so. People are having no problem finding ISIS websites and things, you know, if the news stories are to be uh, believed, and I think that they probably are. But this, this uh, James uh, Aretti writing in the Wall Street Journal, as social media helped topple regimes in the Middle East and Northern Africa, a senior colonel in the People's, People's Liberation Army of China publicly warned that an Internet dominated by the U.S. threatened to overthrow China's Communist Party. Yi Zheng, 
And a Chinese researcher writing in the state-run China Youth Daily said the Internet represented a new form of global control. And the U.S. was a shadow presence during some of these popular uprisings. But Beijing had better pay attention. The, the fight for net neutrality is far from over here in the United States. Because Republicans and the corporations who own them are working very, very aggressively to be able to to allow internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, AT and T, and and the like, to be able to say to you, uh, yeah, your basic internet service, you know, thirty five bucks a month. But uh, if you want news sites, that's an extra ten dollars a month. If you want to stream video like on YouTube or Netflix, that's an extra twenty dollars a month. If you want to go to porn sites, that's an extra thirty dollars a month. And whenever you try to hit any of those sites without having paid those extra fees, you'll get a blocked message. Sorry, you haven't paid your fee. It's just like on cable TV. If you try to go to, to Showtime or HBO and you haven't paid the premium for them, then you know you, you, you get this message. Sorry, you haven't paid for this. This is what the Republicans want. And, uh, well, it's what the corporations who own the Republicans want, which is why the Republicans are working for it, and it's consistent with, with all those kind of things. It's great to welcome back Tim Carr, Senior Director of Strategy for Free Press. Free Press has been working on the issue of net neutrality for as long as I can remember, Tim. And, you know, after the big net neutrality results that we had recently, people were sort of basking in what seemed to be a big success. And in many ways it was, right? Former cable lobbyist Tom Wheeler at the FCC going in what seemed to be mostly the right direction on the issue, et cetera, et cetera. But we haven't really heard too much from corporate media since. And there are still some challenges that people may not be aware of. So let's start there. Where does net neutrality stand now? Well, as you noted, we had this this amazing public interest victory in February of this year when the FCC decided to treat Internet access providers as common carriers, meaning that they had to protect net neutrality. Of course, um, as with most things in Washington, nothing is ever final. And when you're talking about companies like Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, uh, they're very powerful. They're very influential in D.C., and they have armies of lawyers and lobbyists. They spend a lot of money on campaign contributions. So, so we've been seeing efforts in Congress. We've been seeing efforts in the courts. And most recently, we've seen uh, efforts by presidential candidates to roll back this spectacular win uh, that granted Internet users the rights to connect and communicate without interference from their phone or cable company. So let's go through the different possibilities you mentioned one at a time to sort of explain how likely we may see a reversal from, from each avenue. First of all, the presidential candidates, like Jeb Bush, for example, who says, yeah. right away, I would repeal net neutrality. Could a president, if they wanted to, in January of 2017, undo everything that has been done? Well, they could certainly try. Um, as the president's relationship to the Federal Communications Commission is that that president, either he or she, 
gets to appoint uh, FCC chair, chairperson and commissioners, and whoever is in the White House also has a majority. The party has a majority at the FCC. So if we were to see a Republican president in the White House, we would have a 3-2 Republican majority at the FCC. So they could begin a proceeding to roll back uh, the victory that we have won in February. However, it would be very difficult, I think, for them to argue the case that putting uh, Internet access prov providers under common carrier in any way has harmed the industry, is any way has harmed uh, consumers. So uh, they can certainly talk about it, and certainly will be talking about it. I, I expect more in a campaign season, but the legal scenario is somewhat complicated uh, given that the FCC acted under its full authority uh, under the 1996 Telecommunications Act. So let's go then from the presidential candidates and a potential president sort of setting the wheels in motion to the, the legal side of it. And I've read conflicting opinions on this. There are, there are some legal experts who say that the reclassification of Internet service providers as common carriers may be vulnerable, I guess would be the term they've used with regard to the law. Uh, Christopher Yu, for example, from the University of Pennsylvania says reclassification of broadband service would not survive judicial review. Talk to us a little bit about the legal side of that. Well, uh, after the FCC made this decision in February and after the, the actual rule came into effect in June this year, uh, a coalition of Internet service providers and their, their trade groups, like the National Cable and Telecommunications Association, filed suit uh, against the FCC. They're now suing the FCC, and they argue, as you, they argue that the FCC overstepped its authority uh, when it did reclassify Internet service providers as common carriers. In this way, uh, there has been a process of, of a back-and-forth process of the filings of briefs, from both the industry side and from uh, the side of the FCC. I should say that, that Free Press, my organization, is intervening uh, on behalf of the FCC in support of their decision. There are a number of legal arguments out there. We argue that the FCC was within its full authority. There was a Supreme Court decision in 2005 called Brand X that said the FCC could reclassify in this way. Uh, they were very clear in the, in the order uh, how they would act and, and from what authority uh, they they were uh, they were they were reclassifying. So there's a you know there's a very clear legal path. And the only problem that the FCC ran into previously, it had lost a previous court challenge when it tried to protect net neutrality under what was what's called Title One of the Communications, is that it did the wrong thing then. And, and what it's done in in February. And February of this year was to correct past mistakes that were actually challenged and successfully challenged in the courts and do the right thing by reclassifying Internet service providers under Title II. I, I understand it gets a little wonky, but I think in this case they've actually uh, been much more clear on, on the legal precedence that allows them to, to act in this way. So there's sort of two legal arguments that could be made, I guess. There's the one you're talking about, which is that of whether the FCC had the authority to make the reclassification. Could there be another argument, sort of a second-order argument, which is, fine, even if we grant that the FCC had the authority to do this, did they do this correctly? In other words, what are what is the barometer that is used to determine whether a particular service is a common carrier? 
Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways that they, they can argue that. One of, one of the arguments that you, know, that you mentioned is that the process was done in, in, uh, in a way that was, was, is questionable. Um, one of the arguments that, that uh, Governor Jeb Bush has put forward is that the FCC was acting um, very privately. They made this decision without transparency, without disclosure, uh, which is kind of funny when you consider that the proceeding itself uh, lasted more than a year and involved um, f- more than four million comments from the public, all which of which were publicly available via the, via the FCC site. So, yes, there are a number of procedural questions that they will put forth. They've, they've uh, when I say they, the industry, the, the industry lawyers have also argued uh, that this ruling somehow violates the First Amendment rights of these corporations. Uh, They've said that the First Amendment grants companies like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T to be the quote-unquote editors of the Internet. That is, they have the right under the First Amendment to censor Internet content. So that's another argument that's been put out there that I think is pretty questionable uh, on the merits. It also twists the intention of the First Amendment in ways that I would, I would imagine would have someone like George Orwell spinning in his grave. We recently reported, I think it was a week or two ago, that the average cable TV bill now is up to about a hundred bucks, up about 40% over the last five or so years, and that this has coincided with not a huge, but not an insignificant four or five percentage point decrease in the number of people who pay for cable television today versus four or five years ago. So isn't this sort of broader environment that we're starting to see of a move slightly away from paying for cable TV combined with getting content from Netflix and Amazon, etc.? Isn't this only going to further the sort of uh, feverishness of the industry, the cable industry, to try to counteract net neutrality? Well, you know, I think, you know, the, the industry has really been arguing or, or, or not, not, or the, their whole frame around this is really that this is about the future of television because they are seeing that evolution where more and more people are watching video via their high speed internet connection. Uh, and, and there is this slight decline in the number of subscribers for traditional pay TV services like cable. So they are very fearful in that sense that we are going to what's called cut the cord. Uh, cut our cable service and then use the internet using services such as Netflix or Hulu and others to, to watch television. And, and their answer to that is to try to con- get more control over the internet. That's why uh, they're making these arguments that they need uh, to be able to discriminate, that is to favor certain services or to try to control where you go online uh, in order to survive. It's worth noting that the phone and cable uh, industry is reports anywhere from 60 to 70 percent profit margins when it comes to providing broadband internet services. So while they may be concerned about this evolution away from traditional television towards a sort of an internet video experience, they still continue to profit very handsomely um, from providing high-speed internet services uh, without this kind of blocking to, to customers. Last thing in the limited time we have left, Tim, back when we still weren't sure what ultimately would happen with the net neutrality decision, there was a very clear ask for people to call every level of elected official that they could get their, get, get on the phone or an email. Is there a clear ask or a clear action item now for the, for our audience, for example? 
Well, there are uh, a number of uh, things going on right now. One of the things that people can do is go to a website called Internet 2016, internet2016.net, which is a new effort to get all of the presidential candidates out there to pledge to support an open Internet. So if you go to internet2016.net, you'll find a pledge action which is tied to the upcoming 2016 elections where we want to make sure uh, that any candidate who runs for public office uh, includes an Internet policy platform that is very supportive of issues like net neutrality, open access, uh, promoting universal access to the Internet, protecting the privacy of Internet users. So we have a whole platform at that website in a way for people to take action to make sure uh, that their candidates, their local candidates, and the, maybe the candidates that they're supporting for, for the White House uh, are pro-Internet candidates. All right, Tim Carr, Senior Director of Strategy for Free Press. Thanks, Tim. Jumping up and down the floor My hat is an animal And once there was an animal It had a song that mowed the lawn The sun was an okay guy They had a pad dragonfly The dragonfly ran away But it came back with a story to say The erasure of history, no matter how relevant, is one way media sidestep debates they might facilitate and inform. So when the name Henry Kissinger came up in the recent Democratic debate, Hillary Clinton has said Kissinger, a close personal friend, also served as her advisor while she was Secretary of State. Many media, particularly television, found it unworthy of note. A Nexus search found just two morning news mentions of Kissinger, while the three nightly news broadcasts and PBS ignored the exchange. There were a few mentions on 24-hour cable news. Author-activist Jonathan Tassini seems to be the only one to use the phrase war criminal. But the main attitude seemed to be that it was bizarre to even talk about someone from the long-ago past. Quote, Bernie Sanders may have won the 1976 part of the debate, bringing up Henry Kissinger, close quote, quipped the host of CNN's early show, and his co-host chimed in, not resonating with millennials. A Fox analyst cited an increase in Google searches for Kissinger's name as evidence that today's voters don't even know who he is. While that might suggest that media should devote some energy to telling them, Fox viewers instead got a clip of host Janine Pirro answering her own question. Quote, does anyone care about Henry Kissinger now? I mean, do the people today care about that? No. Close quote. Finally, the datum that Hillary Clinton says Bernie Sanders' proposals would increase the size of government by 40 percent is in wide circulation. Completely apart from its veracity or its usefulness as a tactic, it's worth asking why so many reporters simply assume that any reader would hear the idea as so patently a bad thing as to require no further explanation. As professor and journalist Corey Robin, among others, noted, the idea actually could use some unpacking. What areas of government is this or that candidate seeking to grow? The military? Their surveillance apparatus? 
how can we achieve the sort of social progress many people say they want, better regulation of, say, public water supplies, without expanding government? It's a critical debate to have, but by presenting growth of government as on its face a problem, media short-circuit a conversation that they might encourage and illuminate. All I need from you is a good conversation, conversation, cause it gives me sweet inspiration, and to tell you I never felt this way before I know there is some way today This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. As we turn to Robert Redford, the legendary actor 40 years ago in 76, has starred in one of the most celebrated journalism films of all time, All the President's Men. He and Dustin Hoffman portrayed Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein investigating the Watergate scandal that eventually brought down President Nixon. Well, now in his most recent film, Truth, Robert Redford portrays another journalist, this time CBS reporter Dan Rather. The film based on CBS producer Mary Mapes' memoir, about how she was fired and rather was forced to resign after they reported that George W. Bush received special treatment in the U.S. Air National Guard during the Vietnam War. This is the film's trailer. Why did you get into journalism? Curiosity. Why did you get into it? You. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you my friend, Dan Rather. I'm the producer. I put the team together. We have Lucy Scott to run point. Colonel Roger Charles worked Abu Ghraib for us. Mike Smith. He was a researcher for us back in 2000. What's our next move? I might have something for the election. The President of the United States may have gone AWOL from the military. He never even showed up. Those parts of his file they didn't like. They tossed in a wastebasket. Do you have these documents? These really are the holy grail of documents. You've got three hours. We're out of time. Start uploading. Go! 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 Tonight, we have new information on the president's military service. Here's to a great story. Hey, Mary. These blogs are saying that the memos can be recreated in Microsoft Word. Several experts have raised serious questions. They're going to start an investigation. This is bad. They do not get to do this. They do not get to smack us just for asking the question. They don't want to talk to your source. No. It's bad. I should have asked the question. You gotta make your case, honey. You have to fight. Somebody has got to confirm those memos. This isn't a trial. This is a hunt. talking about is you bringing your politics into your report. I did nothing of the kind. Where does politics not enter into this? Our story was about whether the president fulfilled his service. Nobody wants to talk about that. They want to talk about fonts and forgeries. And they hope to God the truth gets lost in the scrum. That's the trailer to Robert Redford's most recent film called Truth. Well, I met up with him at, at the Sundance Film Festival on Monday, where he founded um, uh, the film festival in 1978. I began by asking Robert Redford to talk about the film Truth. It was basically the story of Dan and his producer, Mary Mapes, 
and what happened in that time when he got fired. And what I remember at that time, I think I was working, <clears throat> doing a film, and what I remember was that he was at the top of his game. There were the main anchors. There was He followed Cronkite, and then there was Brokaw, and then Jennings. And he was the top dog and had a huge following. And what I remembered was they were going, vaguely, they were going after a story about Bush's Air National Guard record, which was full of holes. And they were beginning to dig into that, and it was threatening the administration, which was Bush at that time. So they, the Bush administration was putting pressure on CBS to back off. I didn't know the details of all this. I, all I knew was that there was a story coming out, and then it stopped. You know, up and shut. Real, and I always thought, well, I wonder if there's more to that story. So anyway, here was the chance, because Jamie Vanderbilt opened it up to tell the fuller story. Well, obviously, it wasn't going to put CBS in a rosy position, so you expected them to go after it, which they did. But for me, it was a chance to say, ah, okay, so this was maybe, I don't know if it was the first time, if you're thinking about all the president's men, I don't know if it was the first time that you had a conjunction between corporate America, uh, journalism, and you know, corporate America, journalism, and entertainment. Those three things that used to be separate came together. And so I felt that was a story that was really worth telling. I want to show you back playing Bob Woodward and all the president's men. Surveillance is doing it's it. It's being done. People's lives are in danger. Wait, Maybe man. even ours. What happened to that justice source of yours? Well, I guess I made the instructions too complicated because he thought I said hang up when I just said hang on. Oh, Jesus. The story is right. Alderman was the fifth name to control that fund, and Sloan would have told the grand jury. Sloan wanted to tell the grand jury. Why didn't he? Because nobody asked. Nobody asked him. The cover-up had little to do with the break-in. It was to protect covert operations. The covert activities involved the entire U.S. intelligence community. Did Deep Throat say that people's lives are in danger? Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. So that's you, Robert Redford, playing Bob Woodward and all the president's men, this 40-year arc, as journalists try to take on power, take on the presidency. I mean, it worked in all the president's men. Here, Dan Rather was crushed and Mary Mays. Well, the difference, uh, in terms of the two, the difference that I could see is that in all the president's men, these two reporters were doing very much what Dan and Mary were trying to do. They were trying to dig underneath what was being covered up. They were trying to get underneath the cover-up, say, what's the real truth? What's the real story? So they succeeded because they were given, they were given permission and, and they were given license by the Washington Post. So their bosses stood behind them. In Dan's case, his boss did not. So CBS did not stand behind Dan and Mary. In fact, they were going through a corporate takeover at the time. That's right. And so they were not supportive. But in all the president's men, what those guys could have done, if they it couldn't have done, if they didn't have the support of the paper, because the paper was going against an administration that was trying to knock them out. So to me, that was the big difference. Is having your media institution behind you. S -s support you. And the power of a media that's holding those in power accountable. Uh-huh. Do you think there's a problem with that these days, especially not only when it comes to government, but when it comes to corporations and corporate power? Well, I think it speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, yes, I do. I think it's changed drastically, not to the better. 
but it's changed drastically. And um, so the position of the media and the position of corporate control, to me, that, and then when it comes to politics, you can see what that's about. When I think things are always changing. It's inevitable that things are going to change. So what happened here? Well, you got Citizen United, which changed the picture. So now you have PACs and things like that. With all that, so money did step into politics in a major way, which I don't think is healthy. And then you had the political division between the two parties. Where there was no, there's no longer a time when the two parties come together to work on something, which during the Watergate time they did. That's gone. So we had this polarization. You got this kind of. It's like a war zone. And it makes me sad for journalism, but it uh, it makes me sad for my country to see how it's been divided up by this vitriol. This is Linnea from Illinois, and I was really glad to hear the food market episode this week, but unless I missed something, I don't think it included an activism segment, so I wanted to call in with a couple ideas for anyone else who is outraged about our corporatized food system. Uh, the John Oliver section highlighted one of the many problems in the meat industry, and if this industry feels problematic to you, one super effective way you can combat it is to eat less meat. I'm not going to tell you we should all be vegans, although that would certainly be a punch in the face of the meat industry, but I think you can still make an impact even if you feel reluctant to give up meat entirely. The idea that we need to make meat the centerpiece of two or three meals every day is a pretty recent one, and guess what else is pretty recent? A corporatized food system. Big meat absolutely wants you to eat meat for lunch and dinner and breakfast too if you can, but the truth is that you don't need meat at every meal or even at most meals. And if you commit to cutting down via a system like Meatless Mondays or never eating meat before 5 p.m., any other strategy that works for you, you will be taking a positive step towards sticking it to the man. So when you're eating less meat, you may be concerned that you're not doing any favors for the small, impoverished chicken farmers we heard about from John Oliver, and that is true. But, of course, neither is Tyson or Purdue doing them any favors. The best thing these farmers can do is flip the bird to their corporate overlords and farm in a way that's more sustainable to the earth as well as to their own livelihood, which is not an easy transition to make. But there are organizations that are there to help, and those organizations revolve around the local food movement, which, in the areas where it's working really well, is building strong local food systems, in part by assisting farmers with startup or with the transition to sustainability. I know that the local food movement gets stereotyped as elitist, and this is not always an inaccurate accusation, but it's also a movement of the people. When it's offering a leg up to farmers, when it's working to build a local food stream that's accessible to everyone, regardless of income, the local food movement is crucial to dismantling corporatized food. And you can get involved by seeking out organizations in your area like a food hub, which is making connections between those local farmers and local consumers, maybe offering grants to farmers who want to make that transition to sustainable agriculture. You can look into whether your area has a community garden or an urban forest, even a chapter of Slow Food USA, which is an organization that in many areas is finding ways to work toward food justice for everybody. 
uh, working with these organizations, you can help change your area's food stream from corporate to local. And you can also make that change happen by shouting loudly with your dollars, buying local whenever you can, growing your own whenever you can. Every piece of food you eat that came from your own backyard or from a small producer in your own town or region is a piece of food that didn't benefit a big corporation. If you don't have your own yard for a garden, you can get space at a community garden. If you have a black thumb, you can support a CSA, which lets you subscribe to a local farm and receive their fresh produce on a regular basis. You can lobby your favorite grocery store to form relationships with local farmers and stock their produce and meat and cheese while prominently labeling it as local so consumers know how to find it. You can work with a farmer's market to make sure food stamps and WIC vouchers are accepted for local food. If you're a parent, you can work with your kid's school to find ways to incorporate local food into school lunches. There are a lot of ways you can do it. Bringing the food stream back to our communities is a huge task that's going to require a lot of work in so many different areas. I hope if you care about decorporatizing our food system, you'll dig in and help make it happen. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Megan from near Seattle. I'm a first-time caller, fairly new listener. I'm calling in response to the education episode, uh, specifically the segment about high-stakes testing. I'm uh, currently a high school senior, so I've had my fair share of standardized testing recently. But I found that at my high school, um, which is a pretty well-funded public high school in a rich, white, suburban neighborhood, that the standardized testing isn't really all that high stakes. Pretty much everyone, you know, in my grade, you know, at my school that I know, we all know we're going to pass the tests, um, and we focus a lot more on all the AP tests um, that we're taking that that mean more to us, I guess, than the standardized tests. So yeah, these high stakes standardized tests I found, um, at least at my you know rich white school are not that uh, high stakes. Uh, they're just standardized and a bit of a joke. Not really sure what anyone could do with that information. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Highlights the different the classism and racism in the public education system, I guess. But yeah, I, just some, something I noticed and thought I would share. Thanks for the show. Bye-bye. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. Just listening to your private prison special. And a couple of quick observations. Uh, First observation which really needs to be made is that private prisons, for the most part, are stimulus packages for white communities. That must be always stated. The majority of the private prisons, especially the ones built in the last 20 years, have been exclusively, the majority of them, not all of them, but in uh, white communities, particularly white rural communities, where if it was not for the prisons, there wouldn't be any jobs. I actually live in an area with a very, very old prison, and um, the majority of the people who work there are white. And so this is something that is constantly a reminder to me. Secondly, capitalism. When I think of capitalism and the private prison industrial complex, I always think to myself that the private prisons were the natural evolution 
or is the natural evolution of capitalism. Why? Because capitalism started off with a major premise, which was imperialism. And built into imperialism was the idea that there were superior and inferior people. The superior people, white people, looked at the inferior people and said that these people automatically had some sort of element within them which was criminal. And most of that criminality came from their color and their culture. When capitalism took over as the official system for mercantilism, uh, if memory serves me correctly, the, the word capitalism came about roughly in the mid part of the uh, 1800s. It took that criminality phase and aspect and basically infused it into law. I mean, it was already pretty much law, but capitalism did not do anything to um, exclude that. And so as black people have attempted to gain greater and greater civil rights, they don't tend to vote for constitutional rights, but civil rights. I think uh, uh, Tawny is the reason for that. But as they attempted to do that, they've never quite been able to convince capitalism that they were not criminal. And this is something fundamental that capitalism will never, I believe, challenge or amend because it is too wedded to the ideas of imperialism. So uh, that's something that needs to be wrestled with if it is going to be wrestled with at all as the society goes through the economic convulsion that it is uh, already signaling it is going through. Thank you very much. A very interesting episode. Peace to you and your listeners. Hi, this is Bethany from Seattle, and I wanted to respond to the comments that I actually hear a lot saying, you know, everyone would rather live now than 100 years ago. Yes and no. I like living now because as a woman, I can be a scientist, I can work, I, I can vote, but none of those things have to do with our capitalist system. Those have to do with people fighting for those rights, and capitalism really couldn't care one way or the other about that or about the health care that people receive. That is all due to public investment and people fighting, so I think that that's the thing that needs to be kept in mind when you're trying to defend capitalism, that a lot of the good things we have have nothing to do with capitalism. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Dave uh, from Olympia, Washington. Uh, it's been a while since I called in. Uh, things get busy, and I'm playing catch-up on episodes right now. But I'm enjoying the voicemail conversation around the virtues of capitalism and the, the problems with inequality, but I feel the need to weigh in. And the, the problem that I see in the conversation that I, I think we're getting a little, we're talking past each other, words like capitalism, they have too many meanings. Wikipedia has, has these disambiguation pages, right? Which, which one of these do you mean? Words like God suffer the same problem. Two people can both say they believe in God and mean radically, radically different things by that. And so, you know, capitalism, uh, to many people, represents America, the, you know, the process by which you can go out and buy things for money in a marketplace. And, you know, of course, that's not 
what people criticize necessarily. They imagine an alternate system where you're, you know, given quote unquote what you need by some, you know, outside power, and you get no choice in, you know, what clothes you wear, what what vehicles or vehicles you don't drive. But capitalism is also a, a you know, functionally a, a political system where, you know, it's a power system where power is given to those with capital, and you know, essentially taken from those that. You know, work for a living. Those without capital. You know, that's something we may have a problem with. But given that, I think a better place to start, rather than maybe jumping to、uh, an individual's understanding of what capitalism is and and defending that, or you know, creating a, a, an imagination of what you think the other person's imagination of capital is and attacking that, is to start with questions. Understanding where someone's coming from is the first step to actually. You know, convincing or having a, a rational conversation. So maybe maybe a better place to start would be,、um, you know, what does Wade mean when he says capitalism? You know, I think there's a lot of、uh, room for nuance there, and you know, his his his, his、uh, thoughts on exactly what that you know system represents to him might have a lot of common ground with、uh, everyone here, and you know, our concerns with capitalism. You know, he might not. Associate that in his mind with capitalism. There may be some other, some other word or, or you know, way that pretty smart guy. But it might not have occurred to him that those things are tied to、uh, the system that we describe as capitalism. So question and listen more than preach, maybe. <laughs> and that sounds like I'm preaching. I'm sorry. Anyhow, Jay, the the shows recently have been fantastic, and we love all you do. Keep up the good work and stay awesome. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. And now we just heard, you know, caller called in, wanted to give some activism regarding food. I got a sort of similar. A message in the form of an email, Fumia from Colorado, in response to the recent healthcare episode, wanted to point out and have me point out to you that Colorado has a universal healthcare bill on the coming ballot this November. So, if you are in Colorado, be sure to support that. Secondly, today,、uh, my biggest congressional crush, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, was tweeting about this news story from the New York Times recently. It's called "Bridging a Digital Divide That Leaves School Children Behind." I wanted to tell you a little bit about it, but first, the context: We deregulated the big media companies, the companies that run the internet and our phone service and all of those things. We deregulated them years ago, and to be fair, the argument, if it is to be believed, To, to put it in the most positive possible light, is that they believed at the time that deregulating the media companies and allowing the media companies who invested in the infrastructure to maintain a stranglehold on that infrastructure,、uh, you know, the wires and all, you know the towers, all those things, by allowing them to keep a stranglehold on those systems, that it would encourage innovation. And that—that's if you give, you know, just give them all of the benefit of the doubt. Of course, the exact opposite happened, and I'm sure many people. I mean, I was like, you know, 14 at the time, so I don't know what was going on, but I'm sure many people at the time thought, I don't think that's how this is going to play out. 
So, you know, instead of innovating and competing and fighting with each other, the big media companies, what they did was just like organized crime families, they recognized that it's more profitable to divide up territory rather than fight with each other. So they created virtual monopolies in most big cities in the U.S. The result is that service is terrible, prices are high, choice is low, and innovation is low. And, you know, because clearly they're seeking to be maximally profitable, which often means crushing innovation, eliminating competition, and giving the minimum viable service rather than striving for the maximum. And how this translates into real life is that many people can't get service at all. And, you know, if it's not profitable to string wires to your town because you live in a low-density area, they're just not going to string wires out there. Same with cell phone towers. If you live out in the country, no cell phone service for you. Then you come to urban areas where service is available, but because they've managed to keep prices artificially high by colluding with their competition and buying off regulators, that leaves some cut off from service just due to financial constraints. So, you know, if you can, if you're old enough, think back 15 or 20 years. That's when I was in high school. You know, AOL really became a thing when I was in seventh grade. So I'm part of like the very tail end of the generation who can remember before the internet. Just barely, but I can remember it. Back then, having access to the internet gave you a leg up. You know, it was super useful. I mean, not as useful as it is today, but pretty useful. So you could use it, and that was great. And if you couldn't, that was a bummer. But it wasn't the end of the world. You could still do things the old-fashioned way, whatever it was you needed to do. Today, things are completely different. The internet is so ubiquitous and so vital to nearly everything we do that having access is merely status quo, but not having access is basically crippling. This is what's called the digital divide, which brings us back to that story, bridging a digital divide that leaves school children behind. Schools obviously recognize the importance of the internet, so they are beginning, and I'm sure have been for a long time, to incorporate a lot of internet-based work as part of their regular schoolwork and homework. So what does that mean for those without the financial means to have a steady, dependable connection to the internet at home? Turns out some must go to great lengths to do what most can afford to do from the comfort of their homes. From the story, Isabella, 11, and Tony, 12, were outside the school because they have no internet service at home and connectivity is getting harder. With their mother, Maria, out of work for months and money coming only from their father, Isaiah, who washes dishes, the family had cut back on almost everything, including their cell phone data plan. So every weeknight, the siblings stood outside the low-slung school, sometimes for hours, to complete homework for the sixth grade. Okay, there are a couple of government programs that are working to close this digital divide. There's a program called Lifeline. It's a program that is uh, meant to subsidize phone costs. It was actually created by the Reagan administration, and now they're looking to expand from phone to broadband subsidies. Also, Connect Home is a new pilot program being pushed by the Obama administration to deploy free and affordable broadband to public housing. Now, to be clear, all of these efforts are good. I hope they are wildly successful and manage to close that digital divide. But I think it's really important to remember how we got to the point where these programs are needed in the first place.
Keep your comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for... That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past Past all the sad stories and wonder what we're doing.